you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast. I am a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing the festival circuit right now. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features and is currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. This week, we welcome directing duo Nick Schoon and Julia Siba on the show to talk about their new documentary, Too Soon, Com- Comedy After 9-11, which is streaming now on the Vice YouTube channel. Uh, Nick and Julie talk about how they met at a wedding uh, and became co-directors from that meeting, which I think is very interesting, and then how they went about filming the interviews for the film, and then how they tackled a licensing issue they faced in making a documentary of the scale with all like the different footage they wanted to introduce into the, into the film. Uh, we also have a brand new listener question to answer and a news story to discuss, which we haven't done in, I don't know, like 100 episodes. So we're going to go right into the interview, but first, Liz... What's going on with you? Oh, I'm in hell. (laughs) Um, I decided to make this short film. And the whole point, like I came out of this incubator to redesign the industry to make filmmaking more fun. And I was like, I'm going to do it different this time. I'm going to have lots of all crew meetings. And we're all going to get to know each other. And we're all going to be really sensible about the way we work. And we're going to make decisions that make it easier for everyone. And you can't do that with a short film. Like I'm learning the hard way that like you could try your best to set up an environment where you make the filmmaking as sane as possible and the hours and the demand not so harsh, but a feature film is always going to snatch up your favorite crew person and take them away because they offer more stability and more constant work and more profile. So I am just hiring and rehiring people over and over again on this short. I'm in hell. That's funny. Yeah, I, I can imagine that being tricky because a lot of the, the shorts that I've worked on before, it's like I hire a DP and like maybe a couple other like key crew people. And then like we just figure out everybody else like, you know, a week before we shoot, <laughs> you know, it's like who's That's available, smart. you know, I should just do that. But um, I'm being very specific about who I hire. <laughs> I really no, want to be good. picky about it. I yeah, I feel like that's a it's a it's a really ideal way to work. You know, and I hope you, I know you'll make it work and I know you'll make it happen. But yeah, I can imagine that being challenging. It's just, it's just foolish because, um, I mean, first of all, it's a horror comedy and we're shooting two weeks before Halloween. So like everyone in the LA area is doing like Halloween horror nights or they're doing like these activations that are Halloween related. And then because of Delta and because of IATSE and because of all these things that are coming to a head, um, I think there's a massive influx of productions right now. And so they're stealing all my crew. <laughs> so um, I just, it's just bad timing. And then my lead actress, who's amazing, who's like the best human in the world, um, and I won't say who this is because. I don't know how ma- how many people know about this, but she'll be eight months pregnant when we shoot, so I can't push it any longer. So we are wow. up against it. We're shooting, and we're just going to make it work. But thank you for your faith. I just want to recognize that like the logistics are never ideal. Um, and how are you? <laughs> You're not in hell. <laughs> what are you doing? No, I'm not in hell. I'm uh, I'm working on a, a job right now with my my day job. It's um you know a, a challenging. 
uh, corporate video, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, but it's like got 90 to 100 visual effect shots and a very demanding director and a very demanding client. And I've been working like, you know, like really long hours and everything. And then my sister-in-law was in town with her little baby who's seven months old. And so there was two babies in the house for like three days. And so like double babies is like... <laughs> It's a lot to manage, um, so I was uh, definitely helping a lot with that as much as I could too. And then, luckily, they were here over the weekend mostly, so I, I didn't have to work too much okay. on the weekend. But, uh, anyways, so that's what's going on. And oh yeah, and then, dude, <laughs> I found out last night at midnight that I left a PA off the credits for the alternate, and he had sent the movie like on a film festival on an online thing to all his family, and he's so excited to share oh. his work. And then that's his name was not on there, and so now I'm like redoing the dcp and paying like you know whatever money it takes to redo it that's to get like a thousand dollars that's really like a lot of money that you're spending i found i found a cheaper well i started already like commissioned two extra dcps for other film festivals and this person okay. is like kind of doing a joint deal and so he had just finished them this morning and i was like you gotta redo them and then he's like so he's giving me a deal but still it's not thousands of dollars but it's like it's a it's lot, a lot. <laughs> It's a lot That's of money. Very for... nice of you. I think I would have just like, sent like, them cookies and said I'm sorry. I don't know. It just feels like if this is gonna be like you know, what if we get into a San Francisco film festival in a few months that like you know needs a DCP? Like, what am I gonna do? Redo it again? So like, I don't know. No, I mean, I just feel like it's the right move to do. Yes, it sucks. It's money, but you know, whatever. I'm just gonna do it. Um, nice. Maybe the good karma will come back to me one day. Um, but yeah, I also wanted to make sure people knew that we have uh, a Patreon page for the podcast. Um, so go over to www.patreon.com slash podcast. You can give a dollar, you can give $2, you can give $5 or even $9, which will get you a brand new fancy, you know, Making Movies is Hard pin that Liz will send to you from her house to your house, wherever you live. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's like kind of what supports the show besides, um, you know, our pocketbooks. So if you like the show and you see, I want to jump in here with a little bit more conviction. Okay. What are you going to say? I want to say, A, we have a brand new producer. His name is Eric Toms, and he's kicking our asses into gear. And you may notice a new format. You may notice us trying to be, um, a little bit more strategic, in the way we put together the show and it's all inspired by this extra crew person but he means business and we need to start paying him we have to start paying Alric back for his investment into this podcast and we just want to make the show as good as possible for everyone so i just want to say like this isn't just like a yeah you know if you can like if you have the means please support the show it would mean everything to us and then we can do more fun things later and like expand so yeah, yeah. that would be great Thank you. Um, anyways, yes, and thank you to everyone who is supporting us on Patreon now. We love it. Um, but I think we've talked too much. Without <laughs> any more delay, here's our chat with Nick and Julie about Too Soon, comedy after 9-11. One of you give us the elevator pitch for Too Soon. Uh, sure. Yeah. Too soon is uh, too soon. Comedy after 9-11 is a documentary that follows the kind of stop and then rise of comedy after the attacks on September 11th, tracking how comedians and entertainers try and find a way to discuss what happened and kind of heal from the tragedy. 
And uh, how many days did you shoot the film? Well, it was a four and a half year shoot. Uh, <laughs> the, I, Over I, I, how many days? Hmm. Yeah, maybe like 50 <laughs> days. Like, Cause I think we had around 50 interviews that we shot. So, um, and it was usually, uh, maybe maybe it was like 35 days because there was a couple days that we did multiple interviews, but usually it was just one or two uh, per shoot day. Well, we did like two trips to New York that were about, what, a week each and a dozen and a half people. And then trip to Montreal, we had five. And then we shot around LA on off days during like Nick's lunch breaks and yeah that's a good question we would have to do some some schedule digging to really get a final tally on that but uh you know that's that's the thing with doing it with just two people for four years and calling in favors and borrowing all the equipment we just like shot when we could basically uh my favorite question what is uh what's the budget that is a good question uh it, well, it's, I'd say when it was just Julie and I, the budget was a used car, maybe a used Prius with, with like that budget. And then to finish it with Vice is like a one bedroom condo in Los Angeles, probably. <laughs> it was, it was like That's but, a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we got we were able to get a lot of it done by ourselves, but in the end, we do need you especially for our project, which uses so many clips from other things we needed to be able to license footage or to pay for a fair use lawyer to explain why we weren't going to pay for this or like how we could legally do it. So that those became the biggest price points, which, which Julie and I from the beginning kind of knew like, oh, we can get this in the can for not a lot of money, but to finish it, we will need some more money because there's just too many clips to to put in the film so um and then you know like why like how'd you come up with the idea like why this story you know of all stories for you guys to tell well i had um uh uh been looking at film schools in new york um and i happened to have scheduled a trip you know months in advance that ended up being two weeks after the attack and so i was in new york visiting friends didn't end up going to see any of the schools, just kind of hanging out with my friends, trying to help them with what they were, the PTSD that they were all kind of dealing with. And um, uh, had to actually walk through the ground zero area because the subways were stopped. So you had to, I had to like take my luggage and walk from one train stop to the other. And uh, it just, that obviously stuck with me. And when I got home from that trip, there was the onion 9-11 issue kind of waiting for me and I laughed for like I was like oh I'm like laughing for the first time in weeks and it was just a very cathartic moment and so when I started pitching Julie the idea she had the same thing of, of oh I had that 9-11 issue um, I'm writing if you see me writing I'm writing down questions to ask you in a few minutes um, so uh, you answered this already but maybe there's more color how long did y'all spend working on the film from from that moment to release, I mean, I could do the math. It's you know twenty yeah. twenty years, but uh, maybe you could bring more information there. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so uh, I mean, I had this idea for a very long time. I just kind of thought someone else would do it because I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I love comedy, but I don't have a comedy background. Um, 
but about five and a half years ago, I was, I think it was the spring of 2016. I, <laughs> I had read this book uh, by Tim Ferriss called the four hour work week. <laughs> and uh, I was, I had gotten it actually for like a family member who was struggling, but I was like, Oh, I should probably read a little of this to make sure it's not BS before I start potting it off to other people. And uh, so I read it on like a plane trip uh, back home and it had a thing of like, if there's an idea or a concept or a corporation or whatever that you've had for a long time and that you want to do something with, but you don't know how, are there five people you could email um, today that could help you with it? And I had met Julie at a friend's wedding and Julie is a comedy journalist who's been doing it for two decades. And so I was like, oh, well, I can at least pitch this idea to Julie and she can tell me if there's any traction there. And so that's when kind of Julie and I started working together. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that pitch lunch was in May of 2016. And then we definitely started filming in July at the Just for Laughs Montreal Comedy Festival that year. So yeah, this thing like predates the Trump presidency. It's and it had gone through a different couple different uh, subtitles of when we were a bit more maybe optimistic about the role comedy was going to play in healing the nation. And uh, yeah, just, just a few different incarnations and just kind of all finally came together the, the five years later with a product we're yeah. very, very happy and proud of. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of the, the, the pitch. And then we, I mean, almost right away, we started researching, finding clips we could use previous interviews if anyone had done any so that we knew who we should try to talk to um and sort of kind of building a master list of like okay who are the people we want to talk to and then seeing who on julie's uh rolodex that those matched up so she, she could do that and then me just so julie was calling in favors to her comic friends and i was calling in favors to my filmmaker friends of like can i borrow your camera stealing edit time on weekends or on nights just to whenever we could so that we could start cutting like trailers and proof of concepts uh just so that we could show show the people we wanted to interview this is what the film is gonna be like because you go to anyone <laughs> kind of like uh you were you're saying like and you're like oh it's a 9-11 it's a, a comedy documentary and people are like i this seems very dangerous <laughs> like this seems like a, a, a an easy you know a, a bad thing that i could fall into so we had to be like no no no, watch this here's what it's about here's what it's going to be like and as we interviewed more people then they could see oh my friend's in it like todd barry is in it or you know gilbert godfrey is in it and once they see those other people are in it then they feel more comfortable and understand, oh, this is not going to be some kind of hit piece or, or anything like that. Like we are treating our, all our interview subjects with respect and, 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 and we're treating the tragedy with respect. We're not, it's not just a series of 9-11 jokes, which is kind of like the last thing we wanted people to think. Yeah, I would say from the comedian's perspective, like they did get it, but also like Nick said, there was just kind of like, ooh, that's a great idea. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like it, the idea that people outside of the comedy world would really understand the concept of it. Um, but we also wanted to kind of narrow the field down um, because, you know, we, we could be talking to comedians still at this point. You know, it could have been a 10 year project. It could have been a 15 year project. Um, so we wanted to narrow it down a little bit to either uh, people within the comedy industry that were personally or professionally affected 
by the events of 9-11 or that they had specifically 9-11 material. So it could all be kind of strung together chronologically from firsthand experience as opposed to just, you know, talking heads, you know, wafting poetically. It was all very much like um, people who had very visceral memories of everything that happened, you know, short term and long term and what the effects were continuing even today. And then um, this is a question for both of you to answer. Compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? Well, well, this is Julie's first project, so, so yeah. First, yeah, I've, I've, I've done journalism for um, 19 years now, um, you know, written for the New York Times and Rolling Stone and Variety and all that. Um, documentary is something I always kind of envisioned down the road, um, especially in recent years as, you know, journalism isn't quite the field that it used to be in terms of relevance and truth-telling and financially and all those things that's a whole different other podcast altogether I can talk about um but I also you know have released a, a book and I have another book in the works and you know when Nick approached about this idea it was like oh yes this is definitely the next stage of a comedy evolution comedy career evolution for me it's just a way of still telling big important stories of things that comedy fans should know about just in a different exciting format yeah and I, I mean for me I, like I have I've worked on a lot of other projects in, in my film and tv career a lot as an editor and then um as a director uh it's funny I I it seems like I tend to either make things that are very simple uh and easy to pull off like a lot of most of my short films even the ones that have done well on the festival circuit i've usually designed to be shot in one day just because i found it's easier to get quality talent and good actors if you're just like it's just going to be one day an eight hour ten hour shoot it's not going to be crazy and you can get like good talent to agree to do like one day on a weekend when they're working on a show where maybe their character doesn't get to do fun stuff and you're giving them something else to do. So like, I would usually design my short films to, to be simple, but with this project or like my first uh, narrative feature film, I, they're just any, trying to make anything feature length is just, it takes time. Like, uh, you know, uh, the first one, like I was talking about how long it took to make this one. And um, uh, uh, someone who, who knows me was like, well, how long did it take you to make the first feature? I was like, well, that was like five years of writing and then a couple years of, you know, like financing and shooting and editing and then film festivals and then trying to get a distributor. And so I was like, yeah, at the end of the day, it all takes time. Uh, this was more challenging uh, than I say a feature one because a lot of times it's you're just waiting uh, in other places where it was like, I was just waiting to hear on the money or waiting for, to hear on film festivals. Uh, but on this one, it was just, we were working, we always had something to work on. There was never a, a, a downtime, essentially. It was always, we can be editing, we can be researching, we can be archiving clips. Uh, so that was kind of the difference between maybe like a narrative project and a documentary. And I said it the other night at the after the screening, like it's really hit me the realization that it was kind of a good thing that it took us five years, most of it, just the two of us, because it's a lot better than I think it would have been 
if it was just a year or something like that, because we really had the time to figure out, you know, what are the story beats we want to hit and how do we want to say things? And most of it was, you know, our voices without a lot of outside control. Um, but thankfully, Vice like saw the vision at the end after we had put all the hard work into it. So yeah, I'm kind of down with this whole five year thing from here on out. I mean, it was good to, it was good to experiment because we could try stuff and fail and no one would see it but us. Uh, whereas when you're handing in a cut to the network, you really want to make sure that it is what you want it to be because they might fall in love with something that you are not happy with. And then you're like, oh, why did we show them that? Because now they like it and we're stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did we fail at any part? I don't think there was anything no, terrible. No, but <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, but, yeah. But, I, but there was potential if we had uh, been working with collaborators from the start of like you're if I don't know especially I'm a I was a I was a good student in college so I was you know you like want to get the A from the teacher so you can sometimes try to please the other people and give them what they want versus what you think you want or the film needs and because Julie and I had been discussing for four years what this should be we were very clear in like what our vision was if if we we would tell an archive once we had an archivist we were like these are the kind of clips we want like very specific we're not like oh just grab everything we're like no no we need this from this person around this time like good luck because julie and i tried to find it and we couldn't so good luck to you um i'm dying to ask like 30 questions but the one that's uh biting at me the most is i work in artist support and if i were talking to two filmmakers who built an entire documentary off of archival and licensed material that they didn't have the rights to I would give them such a talking to because I would just be like, how, like, what do you, what do you think? So it's just going to come in and rescue you and pay for all of this footage and then release you onto a massive platform. Um, and that happened to you. So I'm just like, can you, how did you get to Vice? <laughs> and what was the backup plan? Well, we did, uh, we were very, as we were working, we became very conscious. We always had, okay, what is the worst case scenario plan? And so this movie was going to come out on the 20th anniversary, whether Vice was involved or not. And that was kind of our pitch when we did pitch to networks. It's like, we are doing this. It is coming out. You can either be a part of it or not, which I think was a stronger pitch position than other projects would, would have. And we were very conscious of making any essential clip that we were using be something that you could argue is fair use. So we would always have either the person themselves talking about the clip. So either David Cross setting up a David Cross bit or one of the other comics saying, oh, I love this Patrice O'Neill bit. And then and then also explaining why it works so that there, there is always a fair use argument of like, we are, we're not just showing a clip to show a clip. We are, uh, so we were like very conscious of that. Um, and so, we knew there could be a version, not the best version. If we couldn't license anything, there would have been challenges because you can't do like B-roll and uh, like things like that. You can't get away with fair use. So uh, it would have been challenging, but I mean, we would have found a way to do it with still photos or whatever was necessary. And it would have been hard to make trailers because once you're doing promotional things, you can't use fair use and promotional items. So we had to be very conscious at the end of like, okay, what clips do we, we could fair use this clip, but is this clip worth paying the licensing for so we can use it in promotion? So we were always, always had a fail safe for that. Um, 
but then we knew we would have to raise them. Even if it was just us, we knew we were going to have to do a Kickstarter or something to raise the money to hire a fair, loose, a fair use lawyer because we didn't want to just count on, oh, we've been, we've been smart about it. So we, we, we did that. And so uh, that was kind of the, the fail safe was to uh, be very conscious of what, what it means to use a clip and making sure it was as, as button tight as possible. Um, yeah. Sorry. I forgot about the, the sec, the second part of the question of, uh, oh, of the, the backup plan. Cause you always had yeah. the backup plan of the version of the film that you could still make. Yeah. I mean, it would be, you know, in, in like a writing equivalent, it'd be like, Oh, I'm, I'm doing an adaptation of this book that I don't have the rights to it. It's like, Oh yeah. Like, don't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but it's like, oh, but if you're doing an adaptation of a book that's in the public domain, oh yeah, go ahead. Like, so that was, we were trying to make sure that we were, were clear on, on what we were doing and not just, uh, going to have a film that we couldn't show or that if we put up on Vimeo would get taken down because we were, uh, in breach of, uh, content or whatever. And in addition um, to, um, a lot of the comedy clips being fair use, just, you know, the, 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York and the Com National Comedy Center upstate New York were also really, really good about, you know, kind of grasping the vision and helping us out with a lot of filling in some of those gaps too for all the different, uh, uh, what do you call the, not displays, but- uh, The B-roll, the archival, the- Whatever, when, when you go into a museum and it's like, we, we have this- uh, The kiosk, is that, your, is that not the word? Okay. When you go into a museum <laughs> and it's like, when you go, yeah. And it's like, we have the, the pyramid display that's running for- Exhibits. Exhibits. Yes. All right. It's early in LA, <laughs> early morning. Exhibits. Um, I'm a so journalist. <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to kind of break down your process. So did you make the whole movie before you went to pitch to networks? Um, and then like, kind of just like you, like Liz said, like you just took the risk, you made the movie you wanted to make. And then you're like, okay, now we need someone to foot the bill, you know, and then just start to like go out and pitch people. And then second part of that question, like how did you get to the, the ability to pitch at these places like Vice, et cetera? Yeah. So what we, what we did is we got essentially um, we had used up kind of Julie's Rolodex and my very limited Rolodex of people that we could interview. And we kind of for ourselves made a rough cut of the film to be like, okay, here's the story. And then we could look at it and be like, okay, what, it, what are the weak points that need strengthening? And I mean, we discussed like, oh, this, if this was all the film was, was, was the rough cut, it was still, it was pretty good but we really thought the idea needed to be great. And so we were like, we need more insight from talk show hosts, or we need more insight from these, these people at the roast besides Jeff and Gilbert or things like that. And so um, since we had a rough cut, it was then very easy. Well, it wasn't easy, but it was, it was uh, we were able to then boil that down into like a sizzle reel. Uh, I think it was like five, five or eight minutes of like, here's, here's this, here's the story. Here's who we, here's the big names we have of Mark Marin or David Cross or whoever we got on our own. So that, uh, and we made, we made our own kind of pitch deck, which was, again, was a little easier because we already knew the story. So it was mostly just translating what we had in the rough cut onto 
the page. Um, and then we took that to production, uh, product, production companies. We were trying to find a production company partner who could help us get those names. Uh, and um, I had a friend who had worked on the history of comedy, uh, which was a CNN series. And uh, so I was like, hey, you guys did the history of comedy. Do you want to do this? It seems right up your alley. And uh, uh, one of the development people uh, loved the project. He moved to a, uh, play, uh, Dan Baglio and he went to Pulse Films uh, and he was like, I love this project. It's the, when I took this job, it was the first thing I pitched, even though I didn't have really permission to do it because I just loved the idea. And so with Dan and Pulse, we then kind of polished all our, materi our materials. We made the, the sizzle a little shorter and a little more scopey and had like their design team make a real pitch deck that looked like, like ours, like got the information across, but like, I was just building it on like my girlfriend's laptop using, you know, pages or whatever Apple program. So it, it did the job, but it wasn't a nice, pretty deck. And so uh, once we had that with Dan, it became a matter of, okay, who's the, who's a, an executive producer who could help us get the interviews, the, the, the bigger names or the names we don't have access to now. And because Dan had worked on the history of comedy, he knew Sean Hayes and his production company, Hazing Mills uh, with uh, Todd Milliner. And he's like, they do a lot of shows. They know a lot of people. And so I think, and because they did the history of comedy, like they, they'll get the tone of this. And so uh, once we had that kind of triumvirate of, we have Pulse, this production company that can deliver a film. We have uh, Sean Hayes and Hazen Mills who can get talent. We have a rough cut from Julie and I that we had like a really solid base to then go pitch to people, which um, happened to coincide with the pandemic happening. And so it, uh, it helped on a lot of fronts because we, we now not only had to figure out how are we going to shoot how are we going to get these people for interviews, but how are we even going to shoot people during a pandemic? So uh, we started, so with that kind of team, we were then able to set up pitch meetings uh, because people know Sean and they, they know Dan, uh, they were willing to hear the pitch. And so it was a matter of pitching to people again, from a little more position of strength of like, we're not trying to start this from scratch. We have a rough cut and here's, here's what we have and here's what we need. And, do you want to help us? And so pitched to a lot of networks and a lot of distributors. And um, there's some interest uh, from a couple of places, but our meeting with Vice, the it was just a difference in tone, which it wasn't a pitch of like, here's Julie and I telling you the story, you know, like that kind of thing. They're like, no, 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 no. We get the story. Like we've seen your materials. We got it. What do you need to finish the film? Like it was more of like a production meeting. And so it became, oh, great. We need interviews with these people. We need these many shoot days. We need this for post. We need an archivist. Like it became a, uh, a meeting about what it would take to finish the film versus here's what the film is. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and so Dan, like after the meeting was, I think we've sold the project because we didn't really have to pitch it to him. They were just like, they are just acting as if the project is already there. So, um, and so once that happened and the deal was 
side with Vice. Um, it was in a matter of, uh, yeah, of figuring out, okay, how do we shoot these interviews with these people that Sean is getting and uh, the Pulse team is helping us book these new interviews? How are we going to actually shoot them? Um, I want to do what I often do, which is interrupt the momentum of the entire interview and with a, with a left field question. Uh, I'm putting myself in Julie's uh, shoes and I'm thinking, here's this guy I met at this wedding and he's just some like, seems like a nice guy. I don't know. I don't know what you were thinking. And now he's approaching me about whether this is a good idea, this documentary what got you so involved and what, what, how did you know that this was someone you wanted to work with? And obviously turnaround is fair play. Nick, you can answer the same about Julie, but I'm just curious because it's someone who's has a informal interest in film gets pulled into this four to five year process is interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, I've always been really interested in Jack Manor in any way. Um, and the friend, uh, you know, who kind of introduced me to Nick at the wedding is uh, a former comedian. I knew him for several years uh, and just always thought he was fantastic and trusted, you know, anybody he would introduce me to. Um, And Nick is also in a writing group with him. So there's sort of that creative connection. Like I knew he was someone who had something if my other friend speaks so highly of him, obviously. And did my fair share of research too. He he checked out okay, uh, but just the idea that um, you know it was flattering when he approached me, um, and I had been very much actively looking for other ways to kind of expand projects I was doing. And his idea was just so original and brilliant. And he was very clearly passionate about it. And like you said, we kind of bonded over the onion issue that I had kept. I kept that thing for years, moving back and forth to New York and Vegas and LA. And it, it meant a lot to me. So to find somebody else who had, had meant something so much too was just kind of, yeah, this is, this is a good fit. It's one of those instances of uh, your gut is telling you yes. And you know, this is one of the appropriate moments to listen to your gut. And I'm very glad I did. Um, so, uh, <laughs> this is really bad, but I just want to go back to what we were talking about before. I knew um, you would, because that's, <laughs> that would make the most amount of sense. We were on a trajectory. You're going to ask about virtual filmmaking or something that would be like germane anyway. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I was just curious, like, um, what, uh, names did vice help you get that you couldn't get on your own? Like, what was that list of names that they helped secure? Well, it was more like- hazy. Sean yeah, like like Sean, yeah, like like Sean Hayes uh, really helped. I mean, Pulse was good for um, kind of all the production stuff. They were really good at, uh, and then like and like uh, securing the talent once we knew once we had their contact info. But like Hazy Mills was really good. Like, and they had a great suggestion, which also I helped the story. Which is we had focused almost entirely on kind of stand up comics, The Onion, and they were like, well, you know because Sean loves theater. He's like, you know, Broadway had to close too. And there's a lot of comedic performers on Broadway. We should talk to like Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick or the producers. I'm like, that's a great idea. If you want to talk to them. And so he <laughs> texts, texts them. And, uh, and now we have that on the books. And because of now, including that storyline, it made sense to include like Scott Thompson's storyline, which is also a kind of theater, New York off Broadway story. 
Um, and so like that kind of, that was kind of like, that would be like the way it would work is, is they would be like, oh, you should talk to this person. And, uh, you know, and we would kind of work our way through a list of like, okay, who are the talk show people we want to talk to? If we can't get them, can we get the head, the head writer? Can we get um, one of the producers? Uh, so like for SNL, it's like we got Beth McCarthy Miller, who's the director, and we got um, Michael Schur, who was the, the head writer who did Weekend Update. So um, that, that's, that's where they, it helped is, is it, and it was twofold. It was because we, it was a Sean, people know Sean Hayes, so it helped in that regard and also help to say we have a home for the film it's going to be on vice this september and that helped with getting people that we wouldn't get before because even like mark Marin, uh you know he's he's talked about on his show he's done interviews for documentaries that never get released and that is not uncommon that these people get approached for a project they spend their time sitting with you and then nothing ever comes of it and so once we had a distributor and a date and a timeline and it'd be like so if you want to talk to us you got to talk to us in the next three months because this is coming out in September uh and so having those forces would, is what helped us kind of get those those people who maybe might have been hesitant before to to sit down um follow-up question sorry Liz um so when you had Sean Hayes and Pulse involved was it like you know, you're just going off and you're like, you know, booking Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick and doing these interviews, or was it all kind of contingent on having Vice or someone like Vice, like ready to distribute the movie before they would actually start, you know, getting the ball rolling on those other things? Yeah, I mean, we, I don't know, Julie can talk about, but yeah, we had kind of reached the limit of our, of what we could do by ourselves. And so we knew we needed partners to, to, to get those, to fill the, not fill the holes, but to, uh, secure the foundations of the parts th of the structure that we thought needed more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we kind of topped out with um, we gotten Marin, Janine Garofalo, David Cross, Daryl Hammond, uh, Lewis Black, uh, Doug Stanhope. Yeah, those kind of names, and then they filled in the gaps with Chris Catan was a big one for SNL, um, and then uh, Cedric the Entertainer for the roast. Uh, Rob Riggle uh, talking about being a first uh, a 9-11 first responder and then also you know seeing firsthand the blowback that Janine Garofalo had later as she was speaking out against the Iraq war um, yeah it was just kind of everybody calling in their favors and just kind of like Nick said filling in the gaps where we needed whether they were actual talent or the the writer producers also like uh, Rich Dom for the Colbert Report and um, Allison Silverman as well, kind of those industry side of people that we didn't really know ourselves that well. Yeah, or even like someone like Jimmy Carr, who yeah. we had actually spoken to years earlier at like a Comedy Central party of like, here's the idea, like, and he's like, I don't think I need to talk about this, you know, at the time. And then, but then when it's now we have Vice and there's a release date, Jimmy Carr will now sit and talk with us you know so yeah. it just had that extra weight of uh like a stamp of approval uh on an email where it's not just me or julie asking it's like this person this producer for vice is asking you if you want to talk to us you know is there a a theme or a mission you have with this film i'm just thinking about norm mcdonald and his recent passing and the kind of 
uh, humor that he's famous for and kind of controversy that he falls into as well. I'm thinking about cancel culture. I'm thinking about the importance of humor. So in, in make, in that onion article and in the purpose (laughs) in your goals for this film, uh, was there a mission to encourage free speech? I don't want to answer for you, but I just feel like there's something here that ties you to that, that hasn't been spoken about yet. Yeah, I think we were definitely very adamant about, you know, like Nick said, it, we, we didn't want to just have a 9-11 clip show, you know, of jokes. There was definitely a story to tell and a message to get across that through uh, combining, you know, it's, it's, it's part uh, recent American history lesson for young comedy fans who don't remember this happening and don't remember what this time was like before social media or we had coined the phrase cancel culture. And yet it existed, you know, people had real repercussions personally and professionally about the things they said on stage, you know, up to and including death threats. Um, So you can combine that with, yes, there's also comedy philosophy. This is how comedians try to process events in the world on stage. Uh, Like Dino Badala said at the time, it was like one big group therapy session and also a social psychology element to it of, yeah, what do comedians provide to audiences that kind of help move us forward and regain a sense of normalcy and, you know, even push society forward in a lot of ways. If you look at the Bill Hicks and Lenny Bruce's and George Carlin's and all that, they were always the ones who were starting to get us thinking in new ways about, you know, what the government is telling us and what the media might not be telling us, especially in this case. Um, Yeah. So we, uh, Definitely just wanted to explore those different options of all coming together and really saying, yes, comedy is something that helps us process. It's universal, it's timeless. Um, You know, as they said in the film, there were Holocaust jokes. Uh, You know, there's Kennedy assassination jokes. There's Pearl Harbor jokes. It's not something that's ever going to go away. This is just the prism through which we explored it of, oh, this was the time when it was like everybody needed it in those days and weeks and years that followed. Um, so I have a, a question that you can't answer, but um, maybe you can give like a little bit of an answer to it. Um, so <laughs> when you guys uh, <laughs> sold the movie to Vice, like, was that like your payday? Like, or is there like another structure in the works where you're going to get paid out on the movie based off of what happens to later, like as amount of views through Vice or where Vice is able to distribute it elsewhere? Or how did that whole deal work for you guys as filmmakers? Yeah, we, so essentially um, the, the bulk of our payment actually came in the form of a licensing fee because Vice is licensing all the interviews that we already shot. So that became kind of the bulk of what we were getting paid. And then in addition to that, we, we are getting uh, paid a salary or whatever you want to call it as the directors and executive producers on the project. So that became uh, like the main ways we're getting paid currently. And then down the line, once um, Vice's uh, uh, control of the film passes, whatever they're I don't know if it's three months or six months, whatever their length of time is that they hold the rights to the film. Then after that, 
uh, us and Pulse Films and Hazy Mills as kind of like the three production company originators will then uh, hopefully make profits on, you know, on uh, distribution after that, whether it's on iTunes sales or if it's on a streaming platform down the road or international sales, those kind of things will, will come down the line. We also um, did get a little bit of a, a reimbursement, not, not the whole thing, but for the, for the funds that we'd put in personally. So that was a little ask that we had in the contract that they were kind enough to accept. So, so it sounds like all in all, it probably covered the expenses you guys paid on the making the movie. Your right? used Prius that, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. We got, we, we got our used Prius back. I mean, I, I mean, the funny thing is I like someone was like, oh, well, that's great that you guys, you know, made money. It was like, well, yeah, if we did the math, though, on like the hours worked versus the payout, it would, you know, we were working for slave wages. But but we did. I mean, it is nice. I mean, when we started this, I mean, I told Julie, like. This could just be on our credit cards to to get this done and we would hopefully sell it and just get our credit, you know, get that P- P- uh, Prius money back. So the fact that we. We were made whole and, uh, you know, we're have been compensated in some fashion, you know, is is great because that does not happen in every case. There's there's but we were prepared to not get that. I guess that would be the thing is it's nice, but we were prepared of like, okay, we're going to have to do a Kickstarter. We're going to have to get donations. We're going to have to do whatever it takes to get this made um, and then hope that there is an audience there for this film that will will be able to recoup those funds but either way we were going to finish it whether we did or not and so it is nice that uh we have been compensated in, in any way like i don't know it's weird to say as like an artist but like yeah you're like even just getting some money is like great you know uh well as, so a, true. as a freelance journalist i will say um it's not a life-changing amount by any means but it's still like definitely the biggest payday i have ever had that's good yeah i mean you know like most filmmakers don't make any money on their films they they spend years and years and years on them they put you know hundreds of thousands of dollars or more into them and then they never see a penny so the fact that you guys got a return is pretty huge and you guys be very proud of that you know um but uh oh can i give an example so just like an example of my first narrative feature the most money i made on that film was that i we did like a, a four, like I four walled it um, for like awards considerations for, for like film independent and those kind of things. And the most money I got back was from f- renting the theater out and getting the ticket, my share of the tickets. Like that was the most money I made on that film, <laughs> uh, right. which it was not a lot because uh, it was a small theater, but like it literally, I was like, oh, I was like, this is the best part of this was putting it in a theater. Like who would have guessed that would be where I would make any kind of money. It's a uh, cleaner accounting is what you experienced. Yes. Just a, a <laughs> yes. quick transaction. Um, yeah. I know we're winding down, but when you sent the pitch email to us about this, about getting on this show, you've you did focus a lot on virtual production and working in the pandemic. And I, I realized that we've barely talked about that. So if there's any way um, you can give some takeaways for our audience who are filmmakers on how best to put together virtual productions, it would be great for them to hear. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the big things we kind of figured out was um, don't, whatever you do, just don't make it look like a zoom, you know, like uh that was that was kind of the network's biggest concern and our concern was that oh it's people talking to a camera um so 
what we would do is we would have Julie set up on an iPad or like a laptop off to the side for eyeline so that the interview subject could talk to her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we would have a, a remote crew camera set up from a safe distance or outside or whatever the interview subject was comfortable with if they were vaccinated or not. Um, uh, and there's also with, a lot of guidelines that we had to follow the, the rule pulses. Yeah. And pulses, getting yeah. people tested. So we, yeah. we did, we fought, we followed all those. Um, but the big thing was, yeah, to, to keep the kind of, the kind of camera that we were shooting with to use as, as close as we could, the same camera and lenses. And then I could remotely try to, my best to direct the crew as to what they should be, what the framing should be, uh, what the lighting and look should be, uh, while Julie is handling the, the interviews so that they're, they're talking to a person, even though sometimes they're not happy that they're t- talking to a person on a night had like, uh, I won't say names, but there was an interview subject who was like, what, why I, I came all the way here to talk to another street. Like, I, I, what am I doing here? You know, um, that kind of thing. Uh, but he was still a good sport about it. He was still good. And he gave, gave a great interview. Um, but it was uh, Scott Thompson. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Scott was, Scott was great. Uh, once he, once he got into it and the conversation actually started, but there was uh, the initial of like, Oh God, not another zoom. Um, and what we found was, <laughs> you know, it seemed, it seemed like, oh, this is going to be a pain in the butt, but it actually kind of helped us in some ways because it did give us a freedom to shoot with people that we wouldn't have had otherwise, where typically it would be like block shooting, like, okay, we're going to be in New York this week. We can only shoot people this week that are available at this time. And because we were doing it remotely, we could be like, you just tell us when and we'll get a, we'll get a three person crew for that day to shoot with you. And so like, we wouldn't have got Jimmy Carr cause he was in London. So if we were doing a normal thing we wouldn't have flown ourselves out or in a camera crew out to shoot Jimmy Carr but because it was remotely we could get him set it up and do it easily. So At it had- five in the morning in LA. Yes. Time. So yeah, so it had its limitations cause there are some times where say there's like a look there's, there's an interview subject where they found an outdoor location but there's a train there. And so we're like, oh God, like, how are we going to make this work? And, or like, okay, we can't shoot outside here. Let's put the camera crew outside and the interview subjects inside. And so those things were, if we had been on set, we would have seen that problem right away and fixed it was challenging. But I, I think the benefits of being able to get whenever we wanted, whenever they were available, because we could just book the crew around them, uh, was a flexible thing that did help but ultimately. And also financially beneficial. It saved us a lot of money on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Versus, yeah, versus flying us out everywhere. Um, we could, cause yeah, we could, we could afford to have, to do the testing and cause that does add to your budget if you're having to test crew. So not having Julie and I on set or flying us around the country and make up for some of those those costs. So I have one more final question before we get to our little five final questions. Like, you know, Nick, you've done, um, you know, scripted narrative and documentary. Julie, this is your first film. What's next for you guys? Are you guys going to do another documentary? Are you going to work together again? Not to put you on the spot. Like, what's the plan going forward for you guys filmmakers? 
We've discussed, uh, yeah, we, we've already thrown around a couple ideas, some based on people we recently worked with. Um, yeah, nothing. I, I, I have another book in the works that's separate from the documentary realm, uh, a memoir with comedian Byron Bowers uh, about his life. Um, yeah, and some other projects, none of which can really be mentioned yet, but there's always stuff on the on Ooh, the exciting. Fun. Yeah, I think for... I, I mean, we haven't gone in depth and had a like power, but I, I think both of us feel like we want to continue to make I mean, we have been approached by other companies to do something similar uh, on similar topics. And so it we made a good film or, or, you know, the reaction has been that we made a good film. And so we think there will be opportunities to do similar things. And I think Julie and I's big thing is making sure that it fits. If it's going to be under the too soon brand, does it fit? that's story brand. Uh, and if it doesn't, then, okay, it doesn't have a different name. Do we even want to do it? Like, I'm guessing, I mean, we could do a bunch, all kinds of documentaries, but, you know, I don't know if Julie is interested in doing a non-comedy <laughs> documentary, you know, so I think that will be part of it is like, Julie will work on projects. Uh, uh, and if, if we have that crossover, then we'll, we'll work together to, to do what we can do. Cause we are, a, a you know, it's a good team. I don't know. Our marriage, our working marriage survived five years, you know, so. Yeah, uh, we definitely fill in each other's gaps and expertise, you know, areas like Nick has this stuff that he does. I have this stuff that I do. And um, yeah, I, I think it's been a really great partnership, but I, I for one, um, when the right ideas come along, you're, Nick is correct in that, like, I'm not going to just do anything. It has to be a good, uh, you know, again, an original, unique, brilliant idea for me to want to do it, but I'm very much uh, looking forward to working again together in some capacity. And I and I think it will be a little easier too, because I mean, because this was Julie's first time around, which is I think a lot of we spent a lot of time having to to be like, this is this is how you make a film, you know, like, and Julie in meetings would just have to be like, I don't, maybe this is a dumb question that everyone knows the answer to, but I have no idea what you're talking about right, right now. Can you explain what this means, you know? Uh, and so uh, I think it'll be a lot, uh, the next ones will be a lot easier because we'll have gone through the process together. And Julie is more of a veteran now of, of filmmaking uh, and what the process is like. Um, uh, yeah, like those kind of things. Just for the record, I, I play dumb on purpose sometimes. It's a journalism trick to be like, so what do you mean yeah. by, can you explain? I'm not all that dumb all the time. No, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and making I, I movies hate... is an irrational process. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. It's still storytelling. I, I'm good at telling a story about comedy. So in, in those respects, I think I pulled my weight. Um, I hate to ask just another question, but I have to. Um, what was your style for asking questions during interviews? Like, I mean, were you guys just tagging each other in and out and both interviewing the subject? Or did you guys pick one person to do the interview depending on who it was? Like, how did you guys handle that as co-directors? It was mostly me doing the bulk of it because um, I can, you know, research everything that needs to be researched in the comedy realm a little bit better. And with the vast majority of people already had a relationship with them. Um, and- nice just know how to talk to comedians in general so yeah. anything that i missed at the end nick would kind of chime in with yeah if there was like store a story beat that i was like oh we need more of this or we missed 
this thing or, oh, we could use this connective byte, then I might be like, oh, hey, uh, just to follow up on what Julie was asking, can you talk about that first night back or whatever the thing is that, uh, because sometimes, you know, an interview would just go, you never know what direction an interview would go. And you ask someone, we would usually start, Julie would ask with like, okay, so just tell us about where were you on 9-11? And everyone had a story and some of those stories uh, would take up a lot of the interview and some would be a little thing. So sometimes it was just, okay, we're almost at, we got two minutes left. Let's, let's get these three things that we need from them real quick, you know? Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, just rapid fire where they're getting distracted by different people. It was, yeah, there was definitely a set process to it. Nice. Okay. I'm done. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is great. Cause I mean, Julie and I have not done a lot of interviews uh, together, so it's, uh, it's good to be able to get into the, the, the weeds and the details with you guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was another good thing about, you know, our different roles of like Nick was able to kind of handle all the film press and I handed handled more of the comedy press and covered more ground and knew what we were talking about in different areas. But yeah, it's it's nice. good to be uh I'm gonna miss seeing them on Zoom every couple of days. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a good final time around. Nice. Well, then let's segue to the final five questions. Um, All right. So we need each of you to answer each question. Whoever goes first, up to you. Uh, I know Julie's answer. What is the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? The first film I've made is called Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, currently (laughs) available on Vice platforms as well as their YouTube page. I'm extremely proud of it. Um, it's it's for sure a all-time career high that I'm uh, yeah going to uh, get a poster framed and stick it up there with the rest of my little journalism covers as soon as possible. Nice. Um, uh, what do I consider like the first thing I made? I mean, I started making videos in high school. I'm trying to remember what the first one was. It might have been something like how to load a Pez dispenser. Uh, and it was uh, as if it was like a 1950s, uh, you know, tutorial, like very, uh, you know, like the, the, first you get up, first you buy Pez and like, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but then it goes a little off the rails, which uh, and becomes like he's dancing with the Pez dispenser and gets crazy. But yeah, I, I started out making videos uh, like that uh, in school, uh, in high school. And I find them very fun. I know my friends who were acting in them are very embarrassed by them, but I find them uh, an interesting. It's interesting to see just like, oh, yeah, like, oh, okay. I always liked comedy stuff. And I always liked uh, things that were taking the standard and figuring out a way to make it a little weird and different. What's the base, best uh, filmmaking advice or writing advice that you've ever received? Uh, for me, the writing advice is always the basic show, don't tell. It applies to anything, whether it's journalism, whether it's filmmaking. Um, and what was the first one? No, that, that was it, I think. Or if, <laughs> oh. I mean, if you, if you have filmmaking advice, you could answer that oh, too. Oh, filmmaking advice. Uh, work with good collaborators who you trust and you share a vision. Don't uh, jump into something that you're like, oh, I hope it'll work. Be sure up top. Nice. Uh, I would say for writing, a screenwriter teacher said the only rule of screenwriting is keep it interesting. Like 
you can fail at all the other aspects and grammar and punctuation. If people keep turning the page because they're interested in what's going to happen next, like that's the biggest rule. Uh, and then filmmaking, I, I wrote a uh, article for Movie Maker Magazine about uh, Werner Herzog gave this lecture at my college, which was an amazing lecture. But one of his like main takeaways is that um, uh, people are more likely to help you if you are doing something than if you're thinking about doing something. So just start, say, I'm making a movie. I am shooting. It's shooting now. Like it's already in process. It's our, the train's already left the station. And like, do you want to hop on this train versus can you help me build a train? Like nobody wants to help you build a train. But people <laughs> want to hop on a train that's already going. I uh, still think punctuation is important. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, what are your goals as filmmakers? <clears throat> uh, moving forward from here. Um, I want to stay with the path that I think I've always carved out for myself within the comedy industry of having a reputation of someone who is not going to just, um, you know, build off of the, the soundbite out of context or listicles or, you know, hot takes, um, that it's real and honest and unique and telling the stories that no one else is telling and finding a unique perspective to tell potential audiences why someone or something is unique and special. I, yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of a philosophy I, I've only come to in the last year or so or six months of thinking about the film and why it worked and why I want to do what I want to do in the future. And I, I don't know, I like, I like little devices. So like, I, I'm calling it like the three E's, which is I like to entertain, educate and enlighten people. And so if I can get two of those three, that's good. If I can get all three, then that's perfect because I don't know, I feel like too soon is very entertaining. You do learn a lot. And then hopefully it's a little enlightening on philosophy and healing power of comedy. And so I'm just looking at the projects that I work on the future. I just want to be, does it check those boxes? Uh, because I want to make something that has value for an audience, not just for me. And I feel like those are the three things I'm, I'm looking at now. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Hmm. Feel free to go first, Nick. <laughs> Don't worry about what other people are doing. You know, just things happen in their own time. So just focus on, don't waste time and energy worrying about what other people are working on and succeeding or failing and just worry about your own projects. Cause that's just, and also maybe waste. Yeah. Just time management would probably be the biggest thing. Cause I look back on what I wasted time on. I was like, Oh, I could have written so many more scripts if I wasn't worried about this thing, which now seems so frivolous and, and just a time sucker drain. I think mine would be um, maybe for a more specific group of people, um, but I definitely consider myself more of an introvert and someone who only ever wants to work alone and I only trust like my vision of things. Um, I think I would have tried to put myself out for collaboration in a lot of ways a lot sooner and changed my mindset about um you know 
it's got to be my way or I'm not doing this story or anything else. Um, and that was even part of an essay that I wrote. We uh, had gotten a $5,000 grant from women making a scene. And I had kind of learned through this process, uh, collaboration can actually bring out a lot of good attributes in you and pair you up with someone else and you, you know, play off each other and it helps make both of you better is something that I definitely learned in this process. And if I could go back and try and do that sooner. Final question. Is making movies hard? Yes. I mean, short answer, yes, it is. Uh, well, I, I don't know. Making a good movie is hard. It's very easy to make a bad movie. And I uh, made plenty when I was in high school uh, and fooling around with the video camera. But uh, it is challenging to make a good film, in my opinion. I personally uh, spent a lot of sleepless nights tossing and turning and, oh my gosh, if this doesn't work out, what's going to happen? And in the process of doing that, might have missed out on the fun aspects of it. Like, oh yeah, we are interviewing these people and we are making progress the whole time. And it was just like trusting yourself to see it through. Um, I think it was maybe more mentally, emotionally difficult than in practicality, I think. Because, yeah, like Nick and, you know, Werner said, you, you, you just do it. <laughs> this thing is happening. So it's more, I think, getting over the mindset hurdle, in my opinion. Nice. So where should people go to, to watch the movie? It's out now on Vice, but do you have like a link, a URL? Like where should people head? Yeah, I mean, if you go to YouTube and you type in Too Soon Vice, it'll pop up on the Vice channel. And if you're listening to this in the, in the deep future, uh, if you just go to toosoondoc.com, there'll always be a link to wherever it is uh, playing or wherever you can watch it. And then just out of curiosity, do you know how long it's going to be on the Vice's YouTube before they pull it down? I think it's through November. November, November. November Nice. Is, is what we've seen so far. But So, so when yeah. people are listening to this in the future, which is about two weeks from now, you will be able to watch it still. And it'll probably yes. have 1.4 million views by then. I'm just going to guess. <laughs> So Liz, what did you think about our conversation with Nick and Julie? The only moment I remember, and I mean, I wish I gave Nick a hard time about this in the show, but I, but I didn't, is he made some comment about how he had to explain the filmmaking process to Julie and it slowed the, the production down. <laughs> and I remember just like being taken aback by that moment because I know he didn't mean, I didn't know he didn't mean anything by it. But then Julie made a comment about how sometimes she plays dumb and that it's a journalist and her. I just remember seeing like, I liked seeing um, the cracks in their relationship because it made them more human because they are such a well-functioning team that I enjoyed seeing. I just enjoy that in general. I enjoy seeing the flaws. <laughs> um, so that's what I remember. But it also was such an interesting model for collaboration that I was inspired by that. And I'm thinking, who, I, who do I know that I went to school with that met at a wedding, that I met at a wedding that I can now make a movie with? 
Yeah. No, it was it was really interesting to hear like the way they divvied up duties, which I didn't ask that question until like the very, very end of yeah. the interview, but I was just like curious. And uh, it was interesting. Yeah, Nick was all technical on with the camera, and then Julie did all the interviewing and asking the questions, and then Nick would chime in. And I thought that was really cool that that was the way that they broke it up. And being a two-person crew, it's like, well, how, how else would you do it, <laughs> I guess? But um, but yeah, no, it was cool to like hear a little bit of their process and you know, just kind of how they secured a lot of their more famous talent, which was like really interesting because a lot of it came from Julie herself and then some of it came from um, other relationships. But yeah, it was kind of fascinating to hear like how it all was pieced together um, over time. But Liz, do you remember what the news segment was called when we had one? Um, It wasn't network, was it? Oh, it was. It was network. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think these segments, like, we have to have an offline conversation about it because unless we go each time and say, this is our segment where we talk about the news, and then we show a clip from Network, it is so random just to have him say, <laughs> like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And then we just talk about, like, a, a news piece. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe that's what this is right now, is that we're trying to bring in a segment where we talk about the news because our producer wants us to. And so that's what we're doing right now. Network. <laughs> Network. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. Thanks to Eric Toms, our new producer. We've got a new story to talk about uh, from YM Cinema Magazine. And it's uh, the title of the article is, With the rise of new iPhone filming technology, will iPhones replace DSLRs in filmmaking? Uh, and... I think, you know, and there's a subtitle. But with regard to that, Ulrich, do you think that iPhones are primed to take over? No, uh, I don't. (laughs) And I mean, having actually shot um, a short film on an iPhone, I feel like, you know, it's a cool tool. It's great and all. And I mean, it definitely looks pretty awesome. And it's far better than any phone has any right to be, you know, but... It just it just feels like the same thing I always say when anyone when anyone asks me this question. It's just like, well, just get a reg, just get a real camera. I mean, you got you you know somebody within the town that you live in wants to make movies and has a nice camera. So find that person and make a movie with them because <laughs> that's that's what this For is all about. It's all I about know it sounded like them, but it also sounded like him. So make with Did them. I say him or them? It's it's like was too ambiguous that I couldn't mm. say anything. I had to say something. Well, let's just let's I for a while we were working on our pronouns and just having like her be the standard, yeah. you know? So, uh I think we should go back to that. Um yeah. so yeah, find uh her in your town, this person who has a fancy camera and make a movie with them. Because uh, I think that that's what this is all about. It's collaboration. You know, it's not about you trying to do it all on your own or you as the auteur mind, like, creating this thing with your phone because that's the tool you have. Like, whatever. Just find the best camera, find the best people, find the best collaborators, go make your movie. But um, what do you think, Liz? Do you think this is like we're all going to be shooting with iPhones in five years? I'm not an expert, and... I want to I want to create a disclaimer to my answer, which is I'm not a shooter. I'm not an editor. I know what a codec is and I, you know, about various resolution specs. But I'm really not not someone who is going to be impacted directly by the evolution of iPhone filmmaking unless my DP says I'm doing iPhone or nothing else. And, you know, I walk. But I wanted to 
say that there was this film that was recommended to me last week um, by Kristen Fitzgerald. Kristen Fitzgerald recommended the film, and it's a film called The Begotten, and it's from like the late 80s or early 90s, and it's this horror film, and it's all on YouTube, and it's like the worst resolution, the grainiest footage, it's all black and white, and yet it's still incredibly impactful. And I think as long as you're telling a story and you're telling a story that, you know, that at least one author feels is worth telling that they're going to invest their, their heart and energy into, I'm not that picky about what format is being shot on. So I'm okay if it's an iPhone, if that's all the filmmaker has. I'm happy to support filmmaking and storytelling at any level. Uh, it's interesting that you thought it was an auteur perspective. Maybe it's because the article referenced that fancy schmancy Lubeski, right? Cinematography? Yeah. Cinematographer? Yeah. But I thought of it well, more I feel, as like I feel a like, But it does play thing. into that, though, you know, because it is like you can just whip out your phone and you can go make a movie whenever you want, however you want, you know? And they were talking about it in the article, like, oh, it's got HDR now, so you can, like, have this option and this tool. It's like, who fucking cares? <laughs> like, like, they all look good. Like, an iPhone ten or an 8 even looks great. They all have good video. It's like... I, I don't know, when, when I was talking to Timothy about this years ago, it, it, and like the whole camera discussion of like, ooh, which camera should you shoot on? Basically, any modern day camera is going to look amazing. And that should be like the thing that you care less about. Like when you're making a movie, it should be the story that you focus more on. And the camera doesn't even matter. Like whatever camera you have access to, whatever's going to be easiest to use for your crew or for yourself, it should be the one that you use. And iPhones are not the easiest because they don't have a lot of data storage and the batteries run out hella fast. And so like when I made my movie, I had to like rig like a Morpheus thing or mo, a mo whatever they're called, mo Mophie, Moby, I don't remember what they're called, but like the little battery pack, you know, yeah, uh, that goes with phones. So I had to like rig one of those to my device, figure out a wiring situation, make sure the wire didn't pop out, make sure it was powering, make sure I had enough, you know, power on my battery that, you know, and it's just like if you, if you take like a C100 or whatever, like any basic camera that you can get for like $100 <laughs> online to rent for like three days from any of these websites, it's like they have batteries that will last for four hours. So just, it's like, I don't know. Anyways, and, and your DP, you know, this, this person um, who uh, lives in your town, she will have like an extra excellent set of uh, batteries with their camera too. So it doesn't matter. Just, I don't know. I think do the thing that's the easiest for you. But if, if the easiest thing for you is an iPhone, then do it. But I don't think that it's going to be. I think there's a lot of better options than a phone to make your film. Anyways, that's my perspective. I think it's a really good perspective. I would just say default, yeah, default to whoever is visually telling your story, whoever your cinematographer is. And most likely, I think we're both banking on the fact that they're not going to choose the iPhone as their medium of shooting. Right. And if it is you and that's all you have, then uh, give it a shot and see what happens. But yeah. think about what you're shooting before you go out and shoot it. Because I don't think a lot of people do that. They just say, oh, I'm going to make this beautiful image. And it's like, okay, but what's the story behind the image? That's the most important. But Alric, you've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. 
All right, we have a brand new listener question from uh, Matthew Holmes, who has done really wonderful things for the show, like written an iTunes review and written into the show before and asked beautiful questions. So um, here he is back again with another one. Uh, Matthew writes, Hey, your favorite crazy question asker here. So I've written in before, but I finally have a hard question. I I started writing a horror feature and kept stalling out. I have three books under my belt, so this was odd not to find motivation. Then it hit me, why not pitch my book? So my question is, with all the Google it and knowing who or what's legit and not just a scammer offering representation, but really just want your money, where should I go? Who could be helping a helping hand at least to point me in the right direction? Listening to Liz and her model for representation makes a ton of sense and made me think how it could be an avenue I should look down. Thank you for always bringing good information and interviews to all of us. Keep it up. Um, so, yeah, what do you think of this question, Liz? I don't know what the question is. Is the question, th- <laughs> I'm pitching my book to make it into a movie, or am I pitching my book to sell to the publishing industry? I think what they're trying to do is that they want representation so they can like they can pitch their book to be optioned so then they can make a movie out of it. So I think the idea. So because rather than trying to write from scratch, just you know, take the book they have and like you know, go option that and get representation and you know, start a filmmaking career, which to me doesn't seem like a good idea. But anyways, well, okay, two things come to mind. One is you know you go and you it's the same thing you would do for film. You would find the books that are similar to yours or that are aspirational. There are you know, they their authors are where you want to be and the books are marketed the way you want your work to be marketed and you find out who's the core person, who's the teammate who works in sales or marketing or pitching or whatever the book publishing world calls it that becomes that representative for that author and you reverse engineer um, who you go out to with your book. But the second thing I would say is there are a lot of directors who do not have representation who are looking for content and i do not get approached ever i don't know if you do Ulrich, but like i constantly have to make my own attachments and go after the ip that i want to work on as a director and i would say there really needs to be a uh, more opportunities for writers to meet directors and producers and I would say find the director you want to work with and pitch them your book directly. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Uh, try to find collaborators outside of representation because, I mean, if you're going after representation as a novelist because you, you've written three books, um, that's one thing. And I don't really know how that works. And I'm sure it's similar to how it works, you know, trying to find representation as a screenwriter, which basically my mind is like you don't find them they find you when you are valuable to them yeah (laughs) right so make yourself valuable as a writer uh of of novels by like but but i think by doing that is like you just have to sell your book and like get awards and i don't know whatever get on a bestsellers list somehow how do you do that i have no idea um but uh yeah i don't know i just i just think this is a silly question it's it's more like like if you, if you wanted to adapt your book into a, a script, you should just write the script version of your book and then try to get that out into the world. Not like just 
give up on writing and then just try to use what you've already written. That seems like really but he counterintuitive. Stalled, right? So I think if he uh, emotionally are, is having a hard time, there are people you can hire just for adaptations. So that's... Yeah. I have a feeling we don't even understand the question. I think you and I... I what Matthew needs to respond um, and tell us because I have a feeling that the actual question is like, how do I publish my, my fourth book? <laughs> that we're going on this like wild tangent about filmmaking and that he's asking us about something that maybe we don't have expertise on. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like if he's trying to get representation as a novelist... We both obviously don't know how to do that. We don't even know how to do it as filmmakers because if we had, we would have, have we would them. have done it by now. <laughs> we both don't have that. Um, but yeah, no, I I just think that like to me, it just sounds like he just needs to 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 keep writing. And if he got stalled out in the horror feature he was writing, it's probably because he doesn't like the idea very much, and he has to come up with another idea that he likes more. You know, um, I don't know. That seems like the the only thing I can think of. Or take the book you've already written and turn it into a screenplay and then move forward with that. But I mean, I guess it's also like hard to answer this question, not knowing what the ultimate goal is, is like the ultimate goal for him to make his own movies or is the ultimate goal to like sell them and make money and like make that a career there. I think very different paths, depending on what your goal is, you know, I I just wanted to suggest one final thing in, in that, you should troll Matthew you should troll if you're looking for a screenwriter to adapt your script you should troll things like the blood list or the page um, or screencraft or whatever or Nichols you should start looking at the writers that are placing in those contests and if you're looking for a horror adaptation find someone in the horror field of those competitions and see if if you want to work together with them because there could be a world where that writer, you could hire them to adapt your book, and then they're already getting a light shown on them uh, for being a genre writer, and there may be a world, word, world where you could collaborate and leverage that attention for your project that you do together. So pick people who are in the same trajectory as you to work with, too. Yeah, that's great advice. Yay. So if you want to be like Matthew Holmes, you could send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want to support the uh, International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including... Publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and they have a top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. Head to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. We want to thank uh, Nick and Julie for coming on the show this week, and thanks to my friend Karen Oberman for setting this interview up. Thank you to editor Cameron Caves for doing the editing. Thanks to all of you for listening, and talk to all y'all next week. Oh, God. My job is really stressful this week, so that's part of me. I'm using that as an excuse for part of my insanity. And I had to drive my sister-in-law to the airport at 6.30 this morning. Oh. Um, well, With her little baby. Little babies. Um, you do seem a little low energy. I'll put it out there. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up higher. Um, and how do I sound? Do I sound okay? Do I you sound okay on your good. end? You sound good. 
Well, okay. Talk like you're going to talk on the show. Uh, hello. It, uh, I can also raise my. Oh, it's speaking. Te- yeah. What about that? Is that better? That's much better. But now okay, I can't cool. see you. <laughs> you can't see me? Oh my god. Riverside, I thought you were going to be our god, like saving us from everything. Um, now you're all gerbled and garbled. Oh, uh, good. Funny. Good, good, good. <laughs> oh, well. As long as it records in pristine HD as they promise, it's worth the $10 or whatever a month. 